Welcome to Lymphedema Podcast. I'm Betty Westbrook, a certified lymphedema therapist and the voice behind Lymphedema Podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to provide answers and explanations for people affected by the lymphatic disease, lymphedema. This podcast is for patients, family members, medical professionals, and anyone interested in lymphedema. Each month, I will discuss a new topic related to this disease to help you learn more and navigate better your journey ahead. Between shows, you can catch me on IGTV or Instagram TV, as well as monthly live Q&A sessions. I'm so passionate about teaching others about lymphedema that I created this podcast just for you. Thanks for joining me. I hope you're ready to learn something new today. Disclaimer, as a certified lymphedema therapist, all information provided is based on my professional experiences and education. I recommend that anyone who feels they have lymphedema or have been medically diagnosed with lymphedema seek in-person medical treatment from a certified lymphedema therapist. Welcome back for episode 56 of Lymphedema Podcast. Today is the start of a three-part series for my interview with the talented Dr. Wei Chen. I had the privilege of meeting Dr. Chen in Boston in 2019 at the NLN conference. I have since kept an eye on his publications and personal posts about his practice. Dr. Chen works at the Cleveland Clinic as the professor of plastic surgery. He's the head of regional reconstructive microsurgery and super microsurgery. In the past few months, I've noticed the attention-catching comments left by his patients on some of his posts. A few things I want to mention here. Primarily, it's a true testament to his dedication to the treatment and cure of lymphedema that Dr. Chen is so responsive to the lymphedema community on social media. He's engaging and informative, and he leaves you with facts and a whole new perspective. Secondly, if you want to see for yourself, just take a look around the lymphedema pages on Facebook and see how responsive he is to those with questions. I wouldn't have enough time to finish the interview today if I started reading them off to you. That's how engaging he is. Traditionally, treatment for lymphedema has included manual lymphatic drainage, compression, exercise, and skin care. But in recent years, there has been a focus on additional treatment options like pneumatic pumps, dry brushing, kinesio tape, and surgery for lymphedema treatment. But to be fair, not all of these options are new. Many are decades old, but have continued to be improved upon for the benefit of the patient. Luckily for all in the lymphedema community, lymphedema surgery is an area of specialization that continues to yield results that are life-changing for many patients. Not all surgical procedures or surgeons are created equal, and I cannot caution you enough to do an in-depth research on the surgeon or their approach before setting a date for surgery. Dr. Chen has continued to enhance the field of super microsurgery with his technique that few are aware of, vascularized lymph vessel transfer. Today, you're going to hear part one of my conversation with Dr. Chen. I hope you enjoy. Um, Dr. Chen, welcome to Lymphedema Podcast. It's so good to have you on today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. For anyone who has not met you yet, can you give us a little self-introduction of your professional background and kind of where you're located currently? Uh, I'm a plastic surgeon specializing in reconstructive microsurgery and super microsurgery, and I'm uh, currently located in Cleveland, Ohio. How long have you been in Cleveland? I moved here uh, almost a year ago, and right after I moved here, COVID started, 
<laughs> so great timing. I feel like COVID has really just thrown a kink in a lot of stuff, but I've seen a lot of good um, work, at least articles, um, patient satisfaction, um, patient reviews on them coming to see you in Cleveland. So COVID or not, you seem to be, um, you know, really succeeding and helping the community. Um, I can't wait to see what you do when COVID isn't a restriction. Um, there's probably no stopping you then. Well, we try to do the best we can. So can you explain to us what is microvascular surgery? Uh, the full name of microsurgery is actually microneurovascular surgery. So we perform reconstruction by operating on tiny nerves and blood vessels. And the conventional border or cutoff threshold of microneurovascular surgery is two millimeters. Anything larger, nerves or blood vessel larger than two millimeters typically would go to neurosurgeons or vascular surgeons. Once they get below two millimeters, uh, that's our territory. That is tiny. <laughs> that is very specific work. What magnification are you working under, you know, for lymphedema microvascular surgery? Depending on the specific lymphatic reconstruction procedure we're talking about, the procedure can either be microvascular, uh, which, as I said, starts from two millimeter going down to 0.8 millimeter. Or it could be super microsurgical, so-called super microsurgery, which is a relatively recent development that was the, uh, this highly specialized area of microsurgery was defined by Dr. Isao Koshima in 2000 from his landmark publication, uh, which uh, the border between super microsurgery and microsurgery is 0.8 millimeters. <clears throat> so 0.8 millimeter is where microsurgery stopped and that's where super microsurgery starts. So it, it's hard to give you a single magnification. We use uh, a low power magnification device or loops that we wear on our head mm -hmm. or uh, when we need really much higher magnification, we go to a microscope and the microscope could be a standard microscope or microsurgery or a uh, really powerful microscope for super microsurgery. How do the lymphedema patients benefit from microsurgery? Uh, that, that's a uh, very broad question. Uh, so there are different types of lymphedema surgery. And as we all know that lymphedema is actually, the term itself is a misnomer. It's not lymphedema. Lymphedema implies that this is a fluid disease, but we know that lymphedema is not just a fluid disease. There is a solid disease component, there's an inflammatory component to the disease, and actually towards the intermediate to the advanced phases of lymphedema, fluid is not the predominant manifestation of the disease. So there are procedures that are designed to remove the solid tissue, or we categorize those procedures as debulking procedures. And there are different ways to remove the solid disease bulk. It could be with liposuction, it could be with different ways to directly surgically remove the tissues. And then there are reconstructive procedures that are designed to restore lymphatic drainage, such as 
lymph node transplant, lymph vessel transplant, and uh, uh, various procedures that connect lymph channels to veins. Uh, people call it lymphovenous bypass or lymphatical venular mastomosis. So these are the two broad categories of reconstructive procedures. Either it's physiologic to restore lymphatic drainage or it's a bulking procedure to remove the solid tissues. And depending on individual patient condition, in general, the surgeon would tailor the treatment to the patient's individual condition. So this approach is quite different compared to the early days of lymphedema surgery when most surgeons were trained and believed in one single procedure. So uh, in the earlier days, most surgeons had a, uh, a hammer and nail approach. We treat everybody with the same procedure. I think now most people realize that uh, treatment should be individualized. And that probably brings about better results for each patient to really truly individualize their surgical approach. Um, we see that in clinics um, as a CLT myself, not every patient gets the same treatment. You don't get the same garment. Um, you don't have the same protocol necessarily. So that definitely makes sense in the surgical realm. Um, to individualize and customize that approach. So you talked about the different techniques and we'll, we'll kind of talk more about that in a little bit. What would qualify a patient for surgery? And that these all may be kind of broad questions. Um, I'm sure that there are really um, very specific details that have to be looked at, um, medical history. And if someone who is a patient with lymphedema right now and they're considering lymphatic surgery, what are maybe, you know, the top few things they need to consider to say, you know, am I a candidate or am I not a candidate? So, well, that, that's a great question. And I, I'm glad that you brought it up um, because every patient has this question and they should be informed. In my opinion, and I, I should stress that this is my opinion, um, lymphedema surgery being a novel field, uh, there are many investigational advancements that are being applied uh, to benefit our patients. So many of the things that we are doing are from recent discoveries. So given the nature of the field, you can expect that there are many opinions. And so I, I need to stress that what I'm saying right now represents my own opinion. But in my opinion, when it comes to deciding lymphedema treatment, I think most frequently um, uh, people hear that lymphedema therapy being first-line treatment and surgery should only be considered when lymphedema therapy has not been successful for a period of time. And whether that's three months or six months or a year, uh, people have different opinions. I look at this situation differently. I don't consider surgery as second line. I don't consider therapy as first line. I consider both surgery and therapy as equal treatment options. They are different. They achieve different things. They have different advantages and disadvantages and they have different limitations. And the pros and cons of one are usually the pros and just the opposite of the others. For example, the advantage of therapy is it's, it's not invasive. 
and that is the disadvantage of surgery. It's invasive. The advantage of therapy, it's low risk. If it doesn't work, patients are most frequently not worse off. Surgery is the opposite. It's invasive. And when it doesn't work, patient can be worked off. So <clears throat> it's not really first line, second line, They're equal treatment options. They achieve different things. And as I said earlier that now some of the patients are being cured by surgery. And as far as we know, we haven't heard the report of therapy curing the patient. So that would be an advantage of surgery. It's more invasive, it's higher risk, but as of now, uh, we are seeing some very promising results from surgery. Hey guys, it's Betty here with Lymphedema Podcast. I wanna remind you that we have some fabulous sponsors supporting this podcast. MediUSA, Juzo, and Bryland's Feet Foundation are all 2021 Lymphedema Podcast sponsors. To learn more about them, you can check out the website resources page, as well as visiting our sponsors page. Last week, you may remember we talked to Aaron Sokowski about the MediVision tool. If you're interested in learning more about that, check out episode 55. My conversation with Caroline Penny from Juzo is episode 52. She'll help you figure out the difference between flat knit versus circular knit. And as always, my BFF Brittany with Bryland's Feet Foundation is on episode 47, talking about the nonprofit Bryland's Feet Foundation that was named in her daughter's honor. Another example being the success, uh, preliminary success in preventing lymphedema from happening altogether in patients who are considered high risk. And so lots of things are changing and the arrival of these so-called preventive or prophylactic lymphedema surgery really gets us thinking again, when should surgery be offered to the patient? Because when we offer a preventive surgery to a patient, this particular patient has not had lymphedema yet. That means if we're offering surgery to someone who hasn't had lymphedema, they might have sustained lymphatic injury, but they haven't developed symptomatic disease, what do we have to turn a patient down who already has established lymphedema and is symptomatic from it? So, uh, I think there's no right or wrong answer. I do think that these are things that should be discussed with the patient. And these are information that should be provided to the patient and involve the patient in the treatment planning process and the decision-making process. So that, that's our current approach. So as you were talking, I, I just started writing down a few notes because it's kind of triggering a few thoughts of kind of what I've either been taught in my CLT training or what I have seen in the clinic. Um, and I want to hit first on the preventative approaches. Um, I know that I've seen um, a presentation from Dr. Alexander Wynn out of Dallas um, promoting um, the LVA, which is the anastomosis approach um, for breast cancer patients when they're undergoing mastectomy or lymph node removal or biopsy even. If, if you're in the lymphedema community, you, you know that surgery can cause lymphedema. That would be the cause for needing a preventative approach along with, you know, 
whatever removal of tumor or cancer. Um, what are some other procedures that can cause lymphedema that are not related to cancer removal? Um, I, I believe I've heard this related to like liposuction, cosmetic liposuction. I've seen one case in my clinic um, where they developed lymphedema of the lower extremities after having cosmetic liposuction. Um, what about, I believe I've heard the same with a hysterectomy or like deep abdominal surgery causing later lymphedema. Um, can you shed any light on that? Or can you give any examples of when a preventative approach should be um, considered going into a surgery? So I, I want to put everybody's mind at ease. Uh, I, I think, uh, yes, we've heard from patients who said all kinds of things cause lymphedema. Um, someone had an energy-based skin tightening procedure to their uh, face, and then they developed facial lymphedema. Someone had liposuction, developed lymphedema. When I heard those stories, I think primary lymphatic insufficiency. Mm -hmm. Those procedures are at least based on our current evidence. I mean, we can be wrong, as I said, uh, 10 years down the road, we would be finding out many of many things that we're saying today turn out to be wrong. But as of today, based on our current understanding about lymphatic physiology and anatomy, uh, there's no evidence suggesting that these procedures are causative. And so whenever I hear a story like that, uh, I think primary lymphatic insufficiency or pre-existing lymphatic defects. So those events that were believed to be causing lymphedema were merely the last straw that tipped the scale, that tip. Finally, it was the trigger that uh, precipitated the symptom, but by itself, they would be insufficiently damaging to cause lymphedema. And we know this from animal studies that lymphatic system is incredibly robust. So it would be hard to to imagine those mechanisms being sufficient to cause lymphedema. There's definitely other things that are uh, very significant, very important in pathogenesis that people don't frequently talk about. For example, age-related decline in lymphatic function. People don't talk about it. And so as we age, our lymphatic function, like everything, declines. It diminishes with age. So let's say if healthy is 100% and assuming we need 70% of lymphatic drainage function to be without swelling, if someone was born with 75% lymphatic function, now that person has a primary lymphatic insufficiency. However, that person would be completely without swelling his or her entire life until one day uh, this person dropped below 70%, and then swelling started. Right. And then this person would be diagnosed with, so th this is a story that I've told uh, many of the patients who report a similar history, but uh, I had a, a patient who presented to my clinic uh, with primary, not primary lymphedema, acquired lymphedema. Well, he turned out to have primary lymphedema, but he was sent to me with a diagnosis of acquired lymphedema and acquired from what? From his wife slapping him. 
So they had a fight and both were emotional. And uh, so the wife uh, slapped him. And then face got swollen and his swelling never went away. He developed uh, head and neck lymphedema. And so when I told him, I think this is primary lymphedema. I'm 99% sure that this is not your wife. And then we proved that. And how do we prove it? That That's uh, a lengthy story. So I, I will skip that part now. But when it's finally confirmed, both of them started crying. And the wife felt guilty all this year for causing. So anyway, the, the point is that our lymphatic system is quite robust. It's hard for minor injury to, to create lymphedema. And when you hear something that, that same kind of odd, think primary insufficiency. I like the way that you put that, that it's really just kind of tipping the scale. We know um, if, if anyone is a lymphedema therapist listening to this um, or has any, you know, clinical background or education in it, you know that um, malformations um, can cause the lymphedema in a kid. Um, and then, you know, it just takes that one day when something kind of tips the scale and causes that insufficiency to really show up. So I, I like the way that you put that. And I feel like that will put a lot of people at ease, um, not being worried about having, you know, those side effects. Cause I was thinking, as I was kind of asking that question earlier, who, you know, who goes in for a hysterectomy and says, you know, I really want to have an LVA done as well, because I'm afraid that this surgery is going to cause me lymphedema. No one knows to be prepared for lymphedema or even concerned about it until it is an issue. So it's really difficult to go into a situation where you're, you know, you're addressing one issue um, and trying to prevent another when you really would have no reason to even be suspicious of it. So that kind of, I think will help to ease a lot of people's minds. So I really appreciate the way that you explain that. It makes a lot of sense. The second thing that kind of came to mind while you're talking is with insurance. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking now with, um, pneumatic pump use, you have to show proof of conservative treatment for an extended amount of time for whatever they deem necessary. I think most Medicare it's 27 days. But for a surgical patient, if I'm hearing you correctly, you know, therapy, clinical therapy versus surgical treatment, it's not you have to prove that your therapy didn't work and then you're a candidate for surgery. Um, you can be a candidate from surgery from day one. Is that what I'm hearing? Amazing. Amazing. And as I um, said, for preventive surgery, <clears throat> you don't even have symptomatic disease. Wow. And surgery is indicated. Uh, well, I should say that conservatively because, well, the, the prophylactic, well, <laughs> even this procedure is so new that even how we're uh, calling it is somewhat controversial. Some surgeons don't like the name prophylactic because uh, they feel that and they are right in that there's already lymphatic injury. Let's say for example, axillary lymph node dissection and radiation following breast cancer, 
there's already lymphatic injury, even if the patient isn't symptomatic. So they prefer to, to call it immediate lymphatic reconstruction. The truth is it is immediate lymphatic reconstruction for asymptomatic lymphatic injury. So is it really prophylactic? Uh, so, I mean, putting the, the naming controversy aside, let's just say this preventive or immediate lymphatic reconstruction so far, I mean, this is a, a new concept. However, the procedure itself isn't new. It's actually based on our extensive experience and expertise that's been developed from therapeutic supermicrosurgical LVA. And now we're simply applying this technique earlier before the patient develops symptomatic disease. So in a way, it's a very uh, relatively technically simple procedure, fast, minimal invasive, it can be done in less than an hour. All patient, patient wake up having no pain at all. And they would say, have you done anything? I, I don't feel anything. <laughs> well, that's, that's the point. Uh, so they're completely comfortable and based on our data so far and also other groups, other surgeon studies, so far our data are highly favorable. It's so favorable that uh, if a family member uh, is unfortunately in, in this situation, I definitely would highly recommend uh, this procedure. What would disqualify a patient? Um, and I know we're not talking about a specific surgical approach just yet, um, but what is you know a hard pass or a complete contraindication of surgical intervention? Yes, I just realized you asked this question before and I, I didn't answer you. No, that's okay. We got off. We got off on a good tangent, so we'll and just we'll circle. So, uh, yes, and this is very important. I meant to answer this question, and then I got off on the tangent. So, um, in general, patient asked, "Would I be a, a surgical candidate?" Nearly everybody is a surgical candidate for lymphatic reconstruction. As I said, it's not a second line treatment. Anyone with lymphedema should be offered the option of both well, in my opinion, lymphedema therapy and lymphedema surgery. The contraindication for lymphedema surgery, it's not really unique. And this is how I practice. Other surgeons might be, uh, might be somewhat different. But in my practice, there is no contraindication that's specific to lymphedema surgery. Mother Teresa says, loneliness and the feeling of being unwanted is the most terrible poverty. This podcast is here for you to find friendship and a community for your journey with lymphedema. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Dr. Chen on surgical interventions for lymphedema, part one. Email me with your story if you would like to share, lymphedemapodcast at gmail.com or visit the website lymphedemapodcast.com to submit a topic for another episode. Thanks again to MediUSA, Juzo, and Bryland's Feet Foundation for being partners with the Lymphedema Podcast.